0: Now, over the last two chapters, uh, Mark has been taking us on a very uh, exciting journey with Jesus. Uh, It began with the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6, verse 31 to verse 44. Uh, That seems like a long time ago now. Then we saw Jesus being confronted by the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7, verse 1 to verse 23. And after that, Mark takes us on the road with Jesus to Tyre. There we met the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7, verse 24 to verse 13. We saw Jesus drive out the demons from our daughter. And then from there, Jesus then gets up. He departs on the way to Decapolis, but via Sidon. Right, and we got to sight to Decapolis eventually. I suggested that probably the journey took at least eight months on foot, making that journey. So perhaps after a year from 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 where he was in Tyre, Jesus was now in Decapolis. We saw that, and when he arrived, these people in Decapolis had previously rejected him. But when he got there, actually, it seems that the demons that he had driven out of that man. We're no longer harassing the people, or perhaps not. It just seems that the, the man now Jesus had set free, okay, you remember the man in Mark chapter 5, uh, who was a terror to the people of Decapolis. Well, he had become something of an evangelist, had not it? And uh, it seems like uh, uh, when Jesus now arrived, he got a better reception than he did first time around. So I guess I'm just joking. I guess that perhaps the demons, that we are still terrorizing them, but they seem now more receptive to the Lord Jesus Christ's message. Okay, so that's what we saw. And immediately the people of Decapolis now saw the Lord Jesus. They they, they gave a wonderful confession, uh, which we read in Mark 7, verse 37. A confession we should know by heart. They said, Jesus does all things well. He even makes the mute speak. And so this morning, though, we we saw Mark start a new cycle of events that actually parallels everything I've just said. Right? It starts off with the feeding of the 4,000. And just like before, Jesus is about to face confrontation from the Pharisees. And that will be followed by a, a healing. And then... Peter's famous confession. So we have Mark doing this twice, right? Mark has recorded these historical events in this way because this is the order in which they happened in the life of our Lord Jesus. That match is clear. But also he's recorded them like this because Mark wants to help us believe the good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We must repent and truly believe in Jesus. So, putting the events in a repetitive sequence as he's done them, and, which effectively means leaving out other things that also happened, he's done that. So, he's given us two cycles, um, leaving out details. And the reason he's doing that is to help slow learners like me, right? Uh, he wants people like me, it takes a while for the truth to sink in. So Mark wants to repeat some of the truths again for us to really get this, that Jesus is the Son of God. If you like, the first confession from the pagans in the Decapolis, he said it was setting us up for Peter's confession that is coming. Mark does not want any of us to fall into a serious danger, the danger of unbelief. By unbelief, I mean willful rebellion against the person and work of Jesus. You have heard the sermons, you you know the Bible, yet you are willfully rebelling against him. And that's what Mark really wants to warn us about, the danger of doing that. It is a danger actually that's open to not so much the unbelievers, but those of us who are the churched people, people that perhaps have grown up in church or they, they sit under sermons every Sunday. There is a serious danger of unbelief. Now, I should point out before we even get into this that unbelief is different from momentary doubt. Uh, sometimes we doubt things, don't we? But those doubts um, often, when, they, when they're just doubts, they actually lead us to look to God for answers, and we discover more revenge, Don't we? And we've seen that with the disciples. They've been doubting a bit of Jesus. They've been doubting a bit about Jesus. And actually their faith is growing. Though it's not obvious, but you'll see that it is growing. So there are doubts like that, which are momentary doubts, which all of us have. That's not what I'm talking about. Unbelief is a state of being. It's where we are not pursuing Jesus, uh, but we are instead growing distant from him. Okay, perhaps we've been enlightened about things of God, and, but then there's a coldness that has grown, perhaps even leading to a state of unbelief. And the writer to the Hebrews warns us that any of us, any of us here in this room, may fall into a state of unbelief without even realizing it. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 to 14 you can mark that on the side of your Bibles and you can look at it later Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 to 14 says this, it, it says take care brothers and sisters lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day as long as this is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't be deceived by sin. By unbelief. He goes on to say, For we have come to share in Christ, if, big if, indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The proof that you are truly converted, born again, is that you finish the race. And you finish it with ever growing reliance on Christ, not coldness, because that is a direction of unbelief. So, unbelief is dangerous. And this evening, we are going to look at how unbelief manifests itself, just based on what Mark tells us, and how God regards it and what it ultimately costs us. And we'll do this by looking at Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees in Mark chapter 8, verse 10 to 13. And there's just three things, as always, I just want to draw out, not always, but uh, uh, more often than not, three things to draw out about unbelief from here to help us understand this serious danger. The first thing we see in this passage is that unbelief tests Jesus. Unbelief t- puts Jesus to the test, puts God to the test. Uh, this morning we saw Jesus feed the crowd in a remote place somewhere in the Decapolis. He has now dismissed the crowd and he's now getting into the boat once more. Look at it. Let's look at verse 10. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So Jesus is going to Dalmanutha. We don't actually know precisely where Dalmanutha is, right? But it's probably on the western side uh, of the Sea of Galilee. Probably near Gennesaret, Right? And as soon as he arrives, the religious mafia, the Pharisees, come and take him to task. Let's read verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Let's just pause there. The original word for came here gives us an image of a military style arrival. It's not obvious in English, but it's almost like a military style arrival. Think Nigel Farage with the leave means leave crowd, you know, marching through all the way to Westminster. They, on PEP, they have come mili- military like, very, you know, serious. And they are arguing with Jesus. We are told they are seeking from him a sign, right? And the word for seeking here is zetain. Uh, it's, it occurs ten times in the Gospel of Mark. And every time it occurs, Mark uses this word, zetain. Mark is conveying for us that someone is trying to obstruct Jesus. This is not seeking you know, to be taken to the mall or something. This is seeking to obstruct the other person. This is the word Mark uses when the disciples come looking for Jesus... Remember in Mark chapter 1 verse 37, it's like a long time ago now. And this is also the word he uses, that the family came seeking Jesus in Mark chapter 3 verse 32. In in all of those cases, in Mark, when someone is seeking Jesus, they're not seeking him for salvation. (laughs) They are seeking, they have come to try and control Jesus rather than submit and follow Jesus. These are just the sort of details we need to be aware of and are helpful, actually. We only understand them if we're going through the Bible verse by verse. Because we get a better understanding, don't we, Of while Mark is using this word. They have come not to submit, but to obstruct Jesus. And we see here that they don't mean well for Jesus. Why? Because we can see that they are demanding from Jesus a sign. That's what he says. Seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. They want a sign from heaven. They want something that could prove that Jesus is really from God. That everything Jesus says is got God's seal of approval on it. They want evidence. Proof. Now they don't expand on what sort of proof they are looking for. But actually... There's a good reason for that, because it's actually obvious. It's not obvious again for us, if we're just reading our Bibles. But there's a reason, Mark doesn't even expand on that, because actually all we have to do is to flip to the Old Testament. As far as they are versed in the first five books of the Bible. And therefore the sign they are looking for is actually the sign that is explained, I think, in Deuteronomy 13, verse 1 to 5. They want a sign, essentially, Jesus to predict something that will then come to pass. And let's read Deuteronomy 13 verse 1 to 5 uh, which explains this sign. Deuteronomy chapter 13 sorry, 1 to 5. Deuteronomy 13 verse 1 to 5. It says this. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign by the way, you need to be listening closely to this. is very important because this is the key to understanding the passage. But it takes, you need to actually pay very close attention. It says this. And the sign of wonder that he tells you comes to pass. Very important. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. So he performed the sign. It's happened, it's made a prediction, it's come to pass. And then it tells you, go after other gods. Verse 13 says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because even though he's performed the sign and it's come to pass, it's called power, it comes to pass, but the key thing is that he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you live the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Let's go back to Mark. The point there I just need to note, the test, the, the, the test there in Deuteronomy is two things. If the prophet performs a sign and it comes to pass, take note, he has power, he does. But listen to what he's saying because if he's he's saying something that you don't believe, if he's not pointing you to the Lord God of Israel then of course his power is demonic and you must put him to death this passage helps us understand the test that the Pharisees are giving Jesus it is actually a trap the Pharisees want Jesus to succeed right? right? They actually want our Lord to make a prediction. And they want that prediction to come to pass. So that when it happens, they can quickly invoke Deuteronomy 13, verse 1 to 5. They will invoke that because the Pharisees have already concluded that regardless of the miracles Jesus does, they concluded that in Mark chapter 3, verse 22, he is, they are calling him, the son of Satan. So they have already concluded by his words. They don't believe he's pointing people to God. They've already concluded that. What they want is this other element of the sign. If you can do something that will actually, if you can make a prediction that it comes to pass, then combining their judgment about his teaching and this sign, then, of course, Deuteronomy 13, verse 1 to 5 comes into being. They will put Jesus to death. They will say, see, Jesus is a dreamer who has given us a sign that comes to pass and is leading people astray to worship him as God. Let's put him to death. Because the issue is not about the miracle, it's about who we worship. And Jesus, by him claiming to be God, which he has in Mark chapter 2, when he healed that paralytic, when he forgave him his sins, already, of course, is claiming divinity. And they are at odds with him about that. So if Jesus now gives them the sign they're asking, well, it's death penalty, isn't it? And notice the word there in verse 11. Did you notice? They were seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. The word for test by the way there means a test with view to destruction. It is the same word in Mark chapter 1, verse 12 to 13, when Satan tests Jesus. In short, Mark is reminding us that the Pharisees are doing the devil's work. This is not a test so that you get a job. This is a test to destroy you. This trick they are performing is straight from Satan's war room. He tested Jesus. Now he's back through the Pharisees. They have come to trap and destroy our Savior. The Pharisees are showing us that people who have an unbelieving heart test God. They are always seeking to prove His trustworthiness, and we see this in the world. We were doing our evangelism last yesterday. It's the same thing that came about. In fact, one lady told me, "I know what the Word of God says." This was a phrase. I don't know about what God says, or so I don't believe in any of it. I want more proof. I want more evidence for God. We share the truth of Jesus with people, but they want more evidence than the word of God itself. What they mean, of course, is that they want God to reveal himself to them in the way they want. They want God to bow to their reasoning. This is the fight they have against God, who's in charge, really. It's not about what's happening. God has already spoken. The Bible tells us that this Attributes is seen in all that he has made, Romans 1. His sustaining power is therefore to say the people have all the evidence they need, and they have the living word of God which shines out like a lamp shining in a dark place. But it's not enough for people. Why? Because they are in a state of unbelief. It doesn't matter what you and I tell them, they just won't believe because they don't want to, they have willfully rebelled. Against God. But this unbelief beloved. Is not just in the world. The the unbelief here. Is the one in churches. Because you see the unbelief. Of the Pharisees says to Jesus. I will only believe your word. If you do this for me. Or do that for me. That is the heart of all unbelief. It's conditional belief. And we see this in churches. Don't we? Many people are running after miracles, dreams, prophecies, and those kinds of things. What are they doing running after this? Well, they're trying to prove that Jesus is at work. The Bible is not enough for them. They need more to prove that Jesus is really at work. The same old trick of Satan is found in our churches. And this is a danger not only for hypercharismatics or that sort, it's a danger even for us in the Reformed tradition. When we lack assurance that Jesus is with us, instead of praying to God for strength, we may sometimes be tempted to seek for a sign. We do this ourselves in our own lives, don't we? We start looking, something is going wrong, and we are beginning to doubt is God at work in my life? We start asking God for a visible blessing. I'm tempted like in the past, I'm trying to make a decision on something, and I'm looking for some sign that actually God approves of the decision that I'm making. We, 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 we all have this danger. Sometimes we, we, we look for a sign of some sign of holiness in our lives, or, or perhaps an unusual event that somehow confirms for us that Jesus is at work in our lives. We are tempted to do that, beloved, because we forget that the Bible is enough. To guide us. Seeking signs from God is a sin. Don't test God. It is a sin. And we know it is a sin because Deuteronomy 6, verse 16 tells us. This is what Jesus Himself responding to Satan says do not put the Lord your God to the test. It is a sin to ask God to to, to test whether He is with us, to do the sort of Gideon thing. That is a sin. And sinning like that, it may be evidence that you are actually deceived. If your relationship with God is based on signs and looking for evidence, I'm not saying evidence doesn't exist. Evidence is there. But your relationship with God must be based on the trustworthy word of God. Period. Because searching for other forms of evidence, other, other forms for a proof, as, as a way somehow for God to prove himself to you, well, it's evidence that you are being deceived and you are living in the realm of unbelief. You need to repent and trust in the plain Word of God because unbelief puts God to the test and it's a dangerous thing. The second thing we see here is that unbelief not only tests Jesus, actually unbelief grieves Jesus. It's grieved by it. It grieves God. Notice that the Pharisees have put a test to Jesus. How does Jesus react? Let's read on verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. The word for sighed deeply there means literally Jesus is groaning deep. Remember when he, when he, when he saw that man who couldn't speak and... and, 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 and uh, what a speech impediment in Mark chapter 7 and uh, in the Decapolis. And uh, uh, Jesus there sighed, didn't he? He looked up to heaven and sighed. This is deeper than that. This is the original word literally means he's groaning. And he's not groaning for himself, he's groaning for them. We know this because this is not the first time Jesus has grieved for them. We've seen Jesus do this in Mark chapter 3, verse 1 to 5. Remember when he healed that man with the withered hand. The Bible says he looked at the Pharisees with anger, yes? But he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. He feels pain for them. He feels deeply tortured when he looks at their unbelief. For them, not for himself. Notice that this grief is not for criminals in Belmash. This grief is not for corrupt politicians. It's not for militant atheists. No, this grief is for Bible-carrying sinners. It's for Bible-carrying Sinners. Those who know the Bible cover to cover the Pharisees knew, memorized the five books of the law. They understood everything to be taught in the books. And Jesus grieves for their unbelief, doesn't he? This grief is for people who will be found in church not Sunday morning, but Sunday evening. Because they are so committed to the things of God. This grief is for the religious, the knowledgeable, those who know the doctrines, those who understand church history very well, they have Bibles on their mobiles and they read those Bibles. Jesus grieves for them. This grief is for those who would sign every gospel statement declaring orthodox teaching. Jesus grieves for them. Why? Because deep down they still do not know him. They have not truly surrendered to him. From the outside they look okay. But as Paul said, they walk as enemies of the cross. Their hearts are set really on earthly things. Even their religious worship is simply for self-enrichment. Their names are not recorded in heaven. Now we are easily fooled by people, aren't we? We are quick to pronounce everyone who says they believe in Jesus when we know them in. We say, Yeah, you're a believer. I'm like that. I want to believe when I meet people that are believers. But Jesus is not fooled by anyone, He sees right to their heart. And He's seen the hearts of the Pharisees here. He knows what they're up to, and He grieves for their unbelief. He sees many of us who are religious and do not have a heartfelt trust in him, and he grieves for us even as other believers are patting us on our backs as pillars of the church. Jesus looks at the heart and grieves. I wonder what does Jesus make of you right now as he looks at you? Is he delighted at your surrender to him, or is he grieved at your unbelief? You see, beloved, following Jesus is not a matter of being around Jesus. That is, in fact, it impresses me that the Pharisees are everywhere where Jesus is. They are followers. Not to, not, in a different way, they are following him. They are around him. They understand his teaching. Everything. And if we didn't know what they were saying, we would think they are the number one fan. If we're not listening in, we would think they are the number one fan. Because they are everywhere Jesus is in Mark. You see, following Jesus is not a matter of being around Jesus, of knowing some facts about Jesus, or being found in the church. No, following Jesus is a heart transplant. God must crack open your chest, remove your current data, corroded by filth and sin, and replace it with his own new heart. It is a second genesis. It is a heart operation that completely changes the heart. And you do not just get a new heart, as we are learning in Second Peter. God plugs not only a new heart in you, He plugs that new heart to God Himself, so to speak. We share now in the divine life of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The triangle of the Trinity is enlarged. We are now at the center. We draw our very life from Him. We now share, partake as Peter says, in the divine nature. And the result of that must be radical, isn't it? Because if that's what's happened to us, it changes everything, doesn't it? Your life now starts growing, becoming more like Jesus. Because as you spend more and more time with Jesus, you become more and more like Him. Every day, the goodness of Jesus increasingly replaces your moral field. Each passing week, the love of Jesus is becoming your love. Each month that passes his desires are becoming your desires. Every year the life of God grows and grows in your life with increasing intensity through your spiritual veins. You still sin. But you are becoming more sensitive to just how sinful you are. You are desiring to put the old man to death increasingly. A true follower knows something about this experience. They're growing every day in feeling the sinfulness of their sin. And they are looking to the cross continuously. To the cross of Jesus continuously. Does this describe your life? Are you growing in loving Jesus? Are you growing in loving his people? Or have you become cold in your approach to him? Because if that's the case, then Jesus is grieving for you right now. Because underneath all oh, that you have tick, tick boxes you've ticked, your heart is still one of unbelief. You still need to be born again. And the grieving of Jesus is important here because it shows us, look, Jesus is not angry at you. But he's grieving. Why is he grieving? Why is Jesus grieving for you? He's grieving because he can see the horrors of hell. He can see the horrors of everlasting punishment that lies ahead of us. That's why Jesus is weeping. And beloved, when we look at the lost, let's pray, if we truly know Jesus, to have such a heart that grieves for sinners. We must not be angry at sinners. We must ask God to help us to grieve for them, to pray heartfelt prayers for them. If we ourselves are truly converted. Because that's the if in this passage if we are becoming more like Jesus we are becoming more grieving for sinners like Jesus, amen, we will become more like that and if we are not then of course we need to go into the hospital room don't we, this, the surgery room and we need that spiritual heart surgery to be done right, by the Lord Jesus, Dr. Jesus to change our heart to really be born again essentially it's not that we are born again before we went We need now a real thing. So I would like to encourage you this evening just to examine your heart. Are you standing in true surrender to Jesus? Is your faith in Jesus real? Or are you in a state of unbelief? Here is why it's important to ask that question. Why is it important? Because unbelief forfeits Jesus. And that's the final point here, isn't it? The first point is that unbelief tests Jesus. Here's how God responds to that unbelief. The second point, unbelief grieves him. We need to respond to that grief of God for us. Why? Because of the final point. Unbelief forfeits, loses Jesus. Notice here that Jesus is not just deeply grieved. He makes it clear that he's not going to be controlled by them. Let's read verse 12 again. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now that is what you call a put down, isn't it? They came with high hopes. They must have practiced this trap quite a bit. You know, you can imagine the Pharisees saying, we're going to try this one out on Jesus. This one is going to work, right? They have come with it. They put it to Jesus and he just put them down. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I said to you, you are not getting anything. No sign will be given to this generation. Jesus is, sees through their hypocrisy. He's like, I am not going there. You Lord are evildoers. I know what you are up to and I'm not doing it. I can perform the sign, but I'm not going to do it. Because it's a sin to do that. It is a sin to please people just for the sake of pleasing them. You see, the problem here, the problem with Jesus giving in to them is that he becomes a people pleaser rather than a God pleaser. It's Jesus, if he does this, is just doing it to be accepted by the Pharisees. And of course, he knows they will destroy him anyway, right? If they do, Jesus does not play that game. He is on a mission to live a life that pleases only God so that he can die on the cross for our sins. The Pharisees do not get it that God is standing in front of them and He won't be controlled or manipulated by anyone. If they want to truly believe in God, they must come humbly to Jesus. And I would say that's the same to you, that if you truly want to trust to know who God is, go to Him humbly. Ask Him honestly questions. If you seek Jesus with a humble heart, you will come become to clarity on these things. If the Pharisees and one of them did, Nicodemus, if the, if the other Pharisees follow Nicodemus' approach and go to Jesus with real honest questions, they will get their answers. If they are struggling because of some situation they are in, and they go to Jesus as John did when he was in Herod's prison, he sent people to ask for clarity on Jesus, And he got his answer. Jesus responds to those who seriously come to him with a humble heart. But the Pharisees won't do that. And so look what happens to them. Jesus now leaves them, doesn't he? Look at verse 13. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. You may have read this so many times in the Bible. But when you see the context in which this is happening, you realize that Jesus' departure here is symbolic. The Pharisees are dangerously losing Jesus now. They will come back to try and trap him, but they, they do not realize that time is running out for their unbelief. Not long from now, they will crucify Jesus. And Jesus leaving the Pharisees is a visible sign to all, a visible warning to all of us: if a person remains in a state of sin and unbelief, you will eventually forfeit the opportunity. To come to faith in Christ. Of course God is sovereign. He will call whoever he will. But you have an opportunity to respond to him. And if you don't. Verse 13. And he left them. Got into the boat. And went on to the other side. He has told them enough. Now they must decide whether to believe him or not. If a person remains in a state of unbelief they will eventually forfeit Jesus. Now let us be clear that if you are truly converted, the Holy Spirit lives in you permanently and you live in God. So you can never forfeit Jesus if you have had that heart, spiritual heart surgery performed on you by Dr. Jesus. And the evidence that you do belong to God is that he will not allow you to live in a state of perpetual rebellion against him. If you rebel against God in some area, or if your heart becomes caught to things of God, if you have truly been born again, God will revivorate your spirit, he will move you back into things of God, and you'll be standing tall again in him. You'll go on to grow. Even your backslidden will be used by God in an amazing way to strengthen your future for ministry, or other things that God may call you on. But if God doesn't correct your rebellion, or if you are becoming called, called, cold, cold, and there's no reversal happening there, well, then you simply do not know God, do you? Because Hebrews 12 verse 8 tells us, if you are left without discipline, in which all who belong to God have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. God always wins back, disciplines those that truly belong to him. If he's not doing that in your life, If you're just becoming cold and nothing is changing, if God hasn't shaken you out of that, then of course you are not truly born again. In the same way, if you just continue living for yourself, despite God pleading with you to truly surrender to him, then of course you don't know God, because the sheep, he hears the shepherd's voice. It means you have a stony heart that needs to be made new. You are not truly converted yet. And until that changes, you remain under God's wrath. You see, one day you will stand before God and give an account for your unbelief. You will stand before a God who knows all your sins, grieves for it, and is deeply offended by it. Beloved, all those sermons you heard about how unbelief tests Jesus, All those sermons you heard about how God is grieved by your unbelief. All those sermons you heard about how unbelief destroys us for all eternity. And yet you never truly surrendered to Jesus. You heard the sermons, but never truly bowed the knee. You felt membership, baptism, evangelism, and other things were sufficient to get you there. You never examined your heart to see, am I standing in the faith? (coughs) You heard the sermons but never radically surrendered to Jesus. You heard the grace of God but took it as a mere tick box. You chose instead the invisible handcuffs of unbelief that has now chained your life with Satan to hell forever. The good news of Jesus is that we don't have to go out like that. Now, of course, people hear me talk about these things and think, well, shall you're scaring me out of hell. If I can scare you out of hell, I'll do it, right? But no, I'm just explaining these things as the Lord sees them. The future we face without God sends God, the Son, weeping, grieving. I think that tells me something about how serious these issues are. And the good news of Jesus is that we don't have to go out like that. This event in Mark is recorded to encourage us to truly surrender to Jesus. To put our confidence in this Jesus, who has come and has been crushed for our sins on the cross. God made him to be a who knew no sin, so that we may become the righteousness of God. He has come not only to make us right with God, but to give us a new life in him. And if you're trusting in Jesus, I said to you, if you are, if you you look at that and say, Yeah, don't look back. Don't look back. If if you're looking at this and you're thinking, Yes, I do trust him. Yes, I'm struggling, but I do love you, Lord. You know I do. As Peter says, even though I struggle, even though sometimes I do sadly doubt you, but I do love you. Then I said, I I said, I said to you then that you know, come afresh to Jesus, and this evening declare a new war on unbelief in your life. No half in, half out. Radically commit yourself to Jesus. Dedicate yourself to Him. Say that it, for me, it is Jesus to live. Nothing else matters except Him and His glory. And ask the Lord to work that out practically. In your life. And as, you, as we come to the Lord's Supper, meditate upon this bread and wine. Let these elements be a visible sermon to draw you even closer to Jesus. It changes how we take the Lord's Supper, isn't it? Because it's a reminder of what we've been saved from. What you have been saved from? So ask Jesus to unleash a new fire in your heart that causes you to weep for sin, to grieve for sin as he does. And longs to see his face. He longs to see his face, isn't it? Pray for that. He would do it. And if you haven't come to that point of surrender, beloved. Can I just encourage you. If you do not know Christ. Then consider these facts. His word is sufficient. Believe his word. Don't put him to the test. Come before him. In true Repentance. Ask Him to save you from sin and give you a new life with God. He desires to do that. He desires to do that for you. He loves you and wants to spend all of eternity with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living, active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Lord, I confess, the first time I looked at this passage, I thought, well, we just add that on top of Mark 8, verse 1 to 9, as just an on. But I thank you that as we go through Mark, you surprise us. You are surprising us. You are teaching us things that we have read many times, but often overlooked. And Lord, we consider especially the seriousness of what's at stake here. But we don't want to die in unbelief. You want to be those that truly trust you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help each and every one here to have this living relationship with you. I pray that if, if there are any here who are trusting in you, but they are struggling in some area, and they are perhaps finding themselves doubting you and, and even tempted to put you to the test, uh, Lord, they would repent and they would have that radical trust in you. I do pray for those that do not know you, perhaps they have attended church many times. But when they look at their lives, they can't really say that Jesus is their great love. I do pray that you would save them. Lord, we hear of many stories of people that have sat through many, many sermons. And then one day it just clicked. That Actually, they hadn't really fully surrendered to Jesus. And they do surrender to you and that you do serve them. And I pray that will be true for some here. We thank you for your grace that you so lavishly poured out for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.